Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Visualizing War and Peace podcast. My name is Otilia Meaton, and I'm one of the student researchers at the Visualizing Peace Project here in St. Andrews. Today's conversation is the second episode in the series that I'm doing on the connections between love, care, and peace in our society. Following on from the first episode with Dr. Roxani Cristali, I'm inclined to ask communities outside of conventional academia what they think about these concepts. And therefore, I have invited Jonathan Fisher, who's a founding member of the Sadvija Foundation, to join in on the conversation and offer insights into what love, care, and peace mean. Jonathan, alongside fellow members of the Sadvija Foundation, work for preserving ancient Eastern teachings of yoga philosophy that at its core aim to promote peace and inner happiness for all humanity. This is of interest to me because... I studied yoga and yoga philosophy about three years ago and became a yoga teacher, whereafter I started studying here in St. Andrews. And I realized this big gap there is between the ancient wisdom of particularly what peace is compared to the more academic studies of peace. And within this research project, I have focused on the interconnectedness between internal and external peace, which are concepts alongside the human acts of love and care that we will explore in today's episode. A big welcome to you, Jonathan, and I'm very happy that you're taking your time to chat with me today. Thank you, Otilia. It's it's a pleasure to be here and speak about these ideas that are close to our heart. Thank you. So I will go ahead and jump into the first question. In what ways do you think that love and care connect to peace? So I'm, I tend to be, when I get asked a direct question, I tend to be quite analytic. And <laughs> maybe it's my training in philosophy as well. So I need to start with concepts and sort of unpack them and then look to how we can answer Yeah, this question, and as your introduction explained, you're looking to try and get closer and closer to understand what this concept of peace is. And that's what this question is really begging. You know, I think the answers are, are embedded in our perception of what these concepts are. These are very big concepts. And, and so if we start with the concept of peace, I think we can look at peace in, in one of two ways. We can look at it as the absence of something. And we can look at it as the presence of something. And if we go to the positive definition of that, uh, I think it may lead us into metaphysical spheres and discussions fundamentally or at its depth. So I'm not sure that defining peace as the presence of something will be very productive for, for our conversation. It moves from a feeling of calmness to a feeling of tranquility, which is maybe more broader. And as I said just before, moving into a metaphysical experience. And I'm happy to speak about that, but I don't think, as I say, for the purposes of this question, I don't think it's where we need to go. I think that, especially when we're speaking under an academic umbrella, I think it's going to be easier to speak about peace as the absence of something. And without being too detailed or structural about it, I think we could all probably agree that peace is the absence of conflict or violence. And so in that regard, the question really is what causes violence or conflict? I don't think we need to go into the definition of those. I think those are generally uh, accepted. There's enough common ground on what constitutes violence or conflict. All of the ideas that I'm sharing with you are ideas that have 
been communicated to Sadvidya from its lineage of wisdom, which has come through an organization called Parati Yoga Dharma, which has been given articulation by a yogi by the name of Dr. Shankarana Joyce, whose book I know you're familiar with, The Introduction, Sacred Tradition of Yoga. So all of these concepts are in some way dealt with in this text and in many different texts in the yogic lexicon or the yogic canon. And it all really starts with a fundamental first principle in yogic philosophy, which is what all beings are looking for, essentially. So the first principle in yogic philosophy is that all human beings, and indeed all beings, are looking for as much happiness and as little misery as possible. And they're basically managing their life, trying to protect the happiness they have, increase it, and to reduce the chances of unhappiness or misery or pain. Uh, It's a very simple equation that every being is basically trying to manage. And having studied philosophy for several years, when I came across this rather simple first principle, uh, I was taken aback at how simple it is, and at least from my experience, how unarguable it is. It seems to be a very solid first principle. And the definition of violence, in some ways, is something that disturbs a being's ability to experience happiness or promotes its experience of of misery or suffering or pain. This is really the definition of violence or conflict in some ways. So having established that all beings, and let's stick to the sphere of human beings at the moment, because I think the human beings are the ones creating the most problems and the most violence and the most conflict in this world, The flow of logic or sequence is very clear in yogic philosophy. And it starts with happiness, which is a strange place to start. But this is where it starts, because the observation of the human system and the human psyche has led yogis to identify that wherever happiness is experienced in any aspect of a human being's existence, there will start to develop an attachment tendency. From that attachment tendency, there will naturally lead an over-attachment tendency. And from that over-attachment tendency, there will lead to some aversion. And that aversion will basically lead to conflict and violence. So at its root cause, the cause of any violence or conflict is coming from attachment, essentially, from yogic philosophy. If we just take an example of that, I will experience happiness, let's say, by traveling to a certain location on a regular basis. And I enjoy the view in that location. I enjoy the scenery and I enjoy the nature. And if that becomes a really important part of my routine, if somebody prevents me from getting there, I will develop an aversion to that person. Or if they're actually physically preventing me, then maybe I will take physical action to bypass them or to remove them from the equation so that I can get to my desired location. The root of any conflict or violent action, whether it be mental, verbal or physical, is coming from this attachment tendency. This attachment tendency is basically an identification of my sense of who I am with that activity. So because happiness is the first principle of what I want to do in my life, this is my goal of life. 
Yeah, and I mean, from understanding you, then we go out of our ways to protect our own happiness by even inflicting harm upon other people because of this attachment that we have developed to our own happiness. I mean, I cannot help but wonder how does that then relate to love and care? Ultimately, could you unpack a bit more how love is or is not a solution to counter this attachment tendency to our own happiness? Wherever I'm getting happiness becomes quite a strong part of my identity and my life purpose. And so then I look to protect it and I look to protect against it. And if I see anyone threatening that, then I'll start taking measures in order to defend against them or to marginalize them or even to preempt anything that they could do to cause problems with that. So having understood that attachment is really the main cause to lead to the presence of violence or conflict, then what is it that can lead to the presence of peace? What is it that can promote peace? And is love and care the antidote to violence and conflict? So we go back to the root and we're saying, well, attachment is the root of that, according to yogic philosophy then in many ways, love and care is not the remedy or the antidote to attachment, not in terms of behavior, not in terms of output. So does love not matter then? Does it simply just do more harm than good? So there's a concept in yogic philosophy, which is called detachment, which is considered to be a fundamental practice that is learned in the yogic path and the yogic journey. And the development of detachment, as opposed to attachment, really promotes peace. I would say more than love and care. When looking at love, oftentimes love is in practice associated with attachment and not with detachment. The yogic concept of love is appreciation for something without any identification with it through one's own connection. So there's a detachment there. There's no identification with the object of what is being appreciated, or there's no attachment to the connection that you may have with that object. So this is actually very difficult unless there's a new approach which is developed in the human being. And that new approach is sparked, if you like, or it's catalyzed by the experience of what we call sometimes inner happiness a happiness that can be experienced without any connection to an external object. And the practice of meditation is designed in order to open the door to that experience. Opening the door to that experience, if it's the spectrum, by beginning to experience that, it begins to promote the fitness in the system to develop a detached approach towards one's worldly affairs. Developing a detached approach towards one's worldly affairs will definitely reduce the presence of violence and conflict in that person's surroundings. And wherever that person influences, it will reduce the effect of violence and conflict. So it's more this concept of detachment or this sense of love, which I think perhaps you could still have unconditional love, but still have attachment to it in some ways. So this concept of detachment, I feel, is is really the, the key concept for promoting peace. And of course, a lot more can be said about how to develop detachment as a skill set for human beings.
That's such fascinating insights. And as you just mentioned here, one of our takeaways is the unconditional love and, and that as a way, not necessarily to promote peace, but to find some, I guess, more stability in life could be a way to understand it for me, who's a university student and for many people dealing with just everyday life occurrences. But sort of jumping off a bit what you said between this inner happiness and this inner peace, if you want, and this can be done through the meditation practices and in many other ways too. But how do you visualize or understand the connection between then this inner happiness or inner peace and then the more external peace as a way to not to jump back into the the definitions, but if external peace might relate more to broader stability in society or not to conflict or the absence of conflict, but more just a stable, well-functioning society, I would call it for now. Yes, I was reminded of a of a story about sort of violence and conflict that is sometimes told, which I think it's relevant for perhaps students of yoga or or anyone who has a an attraction towards a belief system which proposes nonviolence as a very helpful approach to life and, and society in general, which yoga certainly does. Nonviolence is regarded as being the fundamental cornerstone of a lifestyle for yogic philosophy because of what I just said earlier, which is the first principle is happiness. Violence is probably the most direct way in which you can disturb someone's ability to experience it. But I think the, yeah, so this story is counterintuitive in some ways because it's a story which is saying, don't forget that sometimes you need to have violence. Uh, so there was a story about this very aggressive cobra, which was living just outside this village in India. And the kids used to sort of play just outside the village. And this cobra was inhabiting that same area and it would always come out and try and attack the children. And so There was a real problem resulting from this. And there was a very wise man, a yogi in this village, and they went to go and consult with the yogi. And the yogi went and was able to communicate with sort of all animals due to his achievements. And he went and he communicated with this cobra wanting to you know, protect all beings. And he said, look, if you don't change your ways of behaving, the villagers are going to come out, they're going to hunt you and they're going to kill you. So You need to stop attacking the children. You need to let them play and keep yourself to yourself. And this yogi, he sort of went away and, and traveled for a long time. And he came back and he was walking towards the village and came through the area where the snake inhabited. And he came across this snake and it looked terrible. It was like bruised and it had lots of wounds. It was really looking terrible. And he, he looked at it and he asked the snake, he said, well, you know, why are you in such bad shape? And he goes, since you told me to stop attacking the children, They've been teasing me and baiting me and playing with me, etc. And I'm helpless. And he goes, stupid snake, you know, why did you mistake my advice? I told you to stop attacking the children. I didn't tell you to stop hissing or, or warning them not to come. So, you know, I think there's a place for violence and conflict inevitably in this world. Uh, we shouldn't overlook that. Uh, we've understood in yogic philosophy that that, That's not to be overlooked. And sometimes violence and conflict can be a duty that's required for an individual or for a part of society 
the soldiers, the military, or indeed a whole nation can sometimes understand that it's duty to execute conflict or to inflict violence. And indeed, violence and conflict is a part of nature. And yogic philosophy is in some ways modeling itself on natural laws understood at depth. To address this relationship or connection between inner peace and outer peace, the first thing for me is to understand that the issue with this is that inner peace for us tends to be quite transitory. It's transient. So I may experience on Sunday uh, when I've got no work pressures and uh, I've got a very free schedule and I've got lots of time, etc. I may experience due to whatever it is I'm doing on the Sunday, a degree of calmness and tranquility. And as a result of that, I may be very relaxed. And I think we can all turn around and say that when we're very relaxed, we tend to be less aggressive, we'll tend to be less defensive, we'll be triggered less, because we're very relaxed. Um, and if you, you take that principle of relaxation to a deeper and deeper and deeper state of relaxation, then our interest or willingness or ability to enter into violence or conflict reduces tremendously. If you take, for most people, the most extreme state of relaxation, which is sleep, when you're asleep, you're, you're going to cause no problems to people, generally speaking. So we can definitely understand that there is a connection between relaxation and as we extend relaxation into something deeper and deeper without even going into sleep, that goes into sort of inner states of calmness or bliss. As you extend that, then certainly there will be less of an inclination to be involved in violence and conflict. The issue here is that that will be temporary. On the Monday, when I'm at work and I'm short of time and it, it was hard to get to work and there was someone cut me off in the road, then I might get triggered because then I'm not feeling calmness. Then I'm actually, I'm late for work. Uh, someone annoyed me and then someone actually cut across me in front. I may then get triggered. It can be perhaps not a, such an effective tool for really promoting the sort of stability that you were alluding to in terms of your, your question around this topic. Okay, so to circle back a bit then, if we wish to extend our own inner states of peace to reduce conflict and thereby enhance peace in wider society, how do we do that? I mean, as a young university student, this so-called state of inner peace seems rather difficult to find. And as you said as well, it is susceptible to change. And I wonder if you could share a bit more about where we start. However, what I would say is the following, that in yogic philosophy, there's this concept called realization, which is an experience uh, which can be defined in different ways, and it is defined in many different ways. For the purposes of this talk, it could be perhaps best defined as an experience of who you are without any connection to this external world, this body being the external world as well. So perhaps in religious terms, you could say it's the experience of one's soul or one's spirit. In even more religious terms, you could say it's the experience of that soul or spirit connected with the universal soul or spirit. This experience of realization leads to a totally different approach to this external world. And the reason for that is because someone who's had that experience will no longer identify themselves with this body, with this mind, 
or with any of the connections that the body and mind have with this external world. As a result of not identifying, there is fundamental detachment. That's not to say, and people sometimes get very confused with this term detachment, which is that to be detached doesn't mean to say that there's no engagement. It means to say that whilst there's engagement, there's no identification with what's being engaged with or the process of engaging with it. So someone can be realized and can be very active, can be very engaged with worldly affairs. And yet they won't get triggered into violence or conflict. But like the snake in the story, they'll hiss, meaning at times they will manifest anger. They may even manifest violence, but they won't be doing it from a triggered place. They'll be doing it from a conscious decision that this is an appropriate time for me to show violence or to show some anger for the benefit of the situation and for the benefit of society as a whole. Yes, there is a fundamental connection between inner peace and outer peace. How to really root that and ground it, what is required is an in-depth experience of that calmness, which ultimately only really develops expression uh, once this experience of realization takes place. Yeah, that's so enlightening in many ways, the words you're saying there. But it also, it leaves you to wonder how this understanding then of, of inner peace can be brought out into wider society or can manifest in more people than just the ones that are perhaps consciously pursuing this realization or consciously pursuing meditation and stillness and calmness in the mind. Because you've worked with this for a long time. And I mean, I'm only getting started on both my life journey in many ways and and this yoga journey of mine. And I wonder in many ways how this can be promoted, in lack of a better word, in wider society to the ones that might not be inclined to pursue it or I've come to a similar conclusion that perhaps the most important thing is to is to be able to provide education with regard to these concepts and in a meaningful way. So education is the key for expanding this understanding. In order to be able to educate, one needs to understand a depth, not just cognitively or intellectually. But these concepts need to be understood and internalized by the people who are communicating them, because only then do they sort of start to become more powerful in going against the mainstream thinking, which is that essentially happiness is best achieved through the material world. Yogic philosophy says, yes, happiness can be experienced through the external world, certainly, and it should be experienced. These teachings explain. However, the happiness that can be experienced in the external world is very, very meager. It's very, very small compared to the happiness that can be experienced internally. And that every human being, by virtue of the fact that they have a human body and a human mind, have the capacity to actually experience that inner happiness. So this is an education process that needs to take place. And it's made more tricky by the fact that any education in some ways is to do with timing. Meaning if someone's not ready to, to hear or interested to hear about something, 
then it's in some ways a waste of time to educate them. I would say the, the difference with that is the education a parent provides a child. And in that regard, uh, every parent has a duty to understand these ideas and principles and to communicate them to their children from a very young age, both through their words and through their actions. And this is perhaps the, the most important way we start on a very small, just making sure that we educate our children according to these terms, then this will naturally uh, expand in an organic way. If you take an organization like Bharati Yoga Dharma in India or Sadvidya Foundation, etc., we're an organization that are trying to educate people on around these concepts. And the most important thing in creating it an environment in order to do that is to find the right timing you know, with someone who's expressed some interest into doing it. So the default education, I believe, has to take place at the, at the home between the, the parents and the children. And then at a certain point, at a certain stage in their youth or adulthood, a person will be drawn to understand more and will try and find an authentic way to understand these concepts in more depth. It is important, however, that this is not an approach for the elite or a very small section of society that has a capacity for these practices. This is a very human approach. It's very natural. It's as natural as sleeping or eating. Our problem is that as a society over many generations, we've become habituated to not exercising this aspect of our being. And so it requires some time to get it working again. But it is fundamentally a natural human reflex and ability and fitness. There's so much more to say, but I think your finishing point here is a beautiful way to end this conversation with as much insight as you've given. And with all these these concepts to start wrapping your head around and to, to utilize the conversations that we will continue on having about both perhaps more about the inner happiness and the inner calmness as a way to transcend this love that is in the universe and that is available to us as human beings. I'm just very grateful for you sharing these words with me today and having this conversation as a way to, well, it feels like a like a small step to take in the right direction and education for sure. I agree is it seems like a fundamental way to slowly work our way towards a more peaceful state of mind and a more peaceful state of human beings, like of all humankind. Yes. So if you have any final words or perhaps that people know where they can find you and we'll of course also link to that in the show notes and everything. Uh, I'd like to thank you for your initiative in this podcast and for your interest in yogic philosophy. It's very important that young people express and ignite their interest and deepen their knowledge in these matters. And that's the purpose for this organization, Sadvidya Foundation, to facilitate it. So thank you for your invitation. And as you mentioned, small steps, small steps are the best steps to take. They are the ones that make the most secure and best progress. So it's a, a good way to end, making everybody feel like just take a small step. It will lead to good results. Thank you so much, Jonathan.
And thank you to you, our listeners, for joining us again as we continue to explore how peace is understood, depicted, imagined, and visualized in our society. I will persist asking these important questions. And the next episode offers another perspective on what love, care, and peace mean in relation to one another. And if you would like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualizing Peace or get in touch directly by emailing us at vispeace at sanandrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young and the show was mixed by Sophia Gerton.